Let's look at one verse tonight, Isaiah 40 and verse 28. It's a great pleasure to be back with you again tonight. Um, Worshiping with you reminds me of um, something that I noticed in the New Testament uh, some time ago, that even though the, uh, the New Testament often speaks of churches in plural, speaking of many different churches or local assemblies, it only speaks of one body. There's not bodies of Christ. There's the body of Christ. And that means that when we get together, um, even though we are individual churches meeting in different places, there's a bond amongst us. Um, a unity that we have in Christ, that if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you are my brother or sister, and likewise, and you have a family that spans the globe that has been worshiping God today. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Really a little foretaste of heaven for us. So I'm just going to read verse 28 again, and uh, then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help on this message. Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Let's pray. O God, who, who is adequate to speak of you. When we come to this text, indeed to this whole chapter, Lord, and it keeps reminding us how very, very great you are and how very, very, very small we are. Oh, Lord, there's a sense in which it would almost be appropriate for us to have no sermon today, but just to be quiet. And we do pray that you would give us a kind of quietness tonight, Lord, because we know that though you have ordained the ministry of the word and you are pleased to reveal yourself, somehow cramming your glory into human minds and human language, Lord, that there is still a sense that we don't want to rush into your presence like fools. And we know that you're here, God, and you are great beyond our conception. Our praises have never attained to the heights of who you are. And yet, Lord, we fancy ourselves to be great and wise people. So please forgive us by the blood of Jesus. Please condescend to come down and meet us. Lord, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so that your children can eat them. And and lift up our hearts, Lord. Uh, Only you know the, the burdens of each person, the secrets of the heart. Lord, please meet with each one. Give comfort, strength, correction. Lord, perhaps if if there's an unconverted person here, Lord, give conversion. Give what is needed, we pray, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ came into the world so that God would come to man. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in him 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All that God is come to us in human form, in human nature. And Christ came to bring sinners to God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so Christ comes to us, Christ himself is God, he's God incarnate, and he comes to bring God to us in a manner of speaking. And he comes and he dies on the cross, and he does so to bring us to God, so that we might know God, so that we might have God, so that God might be our God. But who is this God? I mean, what are we even talking about here? We, we, uh, we As Christians, we... We often talk about God quite a bit, but, but who is this God? Well, well, whoever he is, Isaiah tells us in this chapter that he's coming. He's not just some being who lives way out there in outer space someplace. Isaiah says he's coming. Did you pick up on that? Look, look at the context for the verse that we're going to look at in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 3 A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What does that mean? It means God's coming, get ready. And you may recognize that in the New Testament, like in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, this very passage is is taken and the New Testament says it's happened. John the Baptist was the forerunner preaching in the wilderness. When Jesus came, God came. And God is coming again. Or in Isaiah 40, verse 5, it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is coming, and he is coming in a way such that he can be seen and known. And one day when Jesus comes back, he will be seen by all mankind. Or again in verses 9 through 11, at the end of verse 9, what's the message that's to be proclaimed to the cities of Judah? It is, behold your God. Look, there he is. God has come. Or verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Or I love this tender, tender image in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so the message of the Bible is that In Jesus Christ, God has come, and God is coming again. But I ask you another time, who is this God? What are we talking about when we're talking about God and saying that God has come, and God will come, and we will see him for who he is? This is really the burden of this chapter. It keeps asking us this who question. Did you notice that? as it was read earlier. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Think about that. 
I could put maybe a teaspoon in there, maybe a tablespoon tops, but God can put the whole ocean there, so to speak. Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Or verse 18, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Or verse 25 and 26, to whom then, the Lord says, will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. <coughs> who created these? Referring to the stars. You see, it keeps saying who, who. It's, it's, it's pressing upon us this question, who is this God? Who is this supreme being that is coming Question after question in this chapter is calling us to get past the easy answers and to really ask ourselves, do you know this God? Do you know the Lord? Because the the verse that we're going to look at tonight, verse 28, says to us that that you need to test your knowledge of God. (coughs) so that you can rest in your knowledge of God. You need to test your knowledge of God. That's the first thing. (coughs) Excuse me. Test your knowledge of God. It says in verse 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard? That's kind of a rhetorical question, isn't it? I mean, the the answer that you would expect Israel to give to Isaiah, well, of course, yes. We we know. We know about God. Um, We've got the law. We've got the prophets. We're not these Gentiles who are totally ignorant of who God is. We, We know. We've heard the message. And In fact, look back at verse 21. This is not the first time he's asked this question. He says there, (coughs) do you not know, do you not hear, and listen to this, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Now, there's a sense in which every human being on earth should be able to say, yes, I know who this God is. The very stars of the heaven constantly testify to me that there is a creator God. Everyone on earth, to some extent, should should say, yes, I know, and especially the people of God. I mean, the people who have the scriptures, the people who have the Bible, us, we should be able to say, well, yes, of course, Isaiah, I know. But but do you understand that this is not just a rhetorical question? It's a soul-searching question. He's saying to you, do you really know? Do, do you know what you know? Have you heard what you've heard? I know you heard it with your ears, but have you heard it with your heart? Do you, do you know this God in a way that perhaps you can describe him, you know about him, but do you really know him? Because if you know him, it's going to transform your life. John Calvin said, We shall not say that, properly speaking, God is known where there is no religion or piety. 
I call piety that reverence joined with the love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. In other words, if you really know God, on the one hand, you're going to fear him. You'll have a reverence for him as God. But on the other hand, if you really know God, you're going to love him. You're going to love him because he is good and, and he has given you so much. And so Isaiah, when he asks these questions, have you not known, have you not heard, he's, he's pressing us to ask ourselves, do you really know what you know? And throughout this chapter, there are signs, there are, there are warnings implied in what he's saying about how it's possible to tell if you don't know what you know. I hope I'm making sense to you here. You know, one of the, one of the big mistakes that I have made as a Christian is thinking that once I understand something in the Bible, okay, I've got that down, now we can move on, right? I got that covered I can, I know, I understand what that verse is saying. I understand that doctrine. So let's talk about something else, right? And, and God has shown me over and over and over again, Paul, yeah, you know it, but you don't really know it. You're not living it. It hasn't been tested and proven in your life. And in this chapter, there are evidences of what that looks like when you don't really know what you know. For example, do people seem bigger than God? Do people seem bigger than God? In verse 15, he's, he's reminding us, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. I mean, when you go to the meat counter, do you ask the person behind it, would you please dust off your... Uh, your scales before you weigh my meat because I don't want to pay for any extra. (laughs) What are you talking about? That's going to make no difference at all. That is utterly insignificant. Well, the nations, the United States, Russia, China, Brazil, all the people of all the world are to God like the dust on the scales. But see what happens when we don't know what we know, people start to get big. They become giants to us. The Bible doesn't say that they're giants. I mean, did you pick up on what they're compared to in verse 22? To God, they're like grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. I was taking a walk through a nature area near where we live recently, and there were some little grasshoppers hopping along. And you know what? If I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing, I might crunch, just step on one without even noticing it. And it would do me no harm. I would suffer no loss. But to us, people, instead of being like grasshoppers, can become like Goliaths. And we can go through life with hearts full of fear and concern. You know, what's... What's so-and-so going to say about this? What's she going to do when she hears about this? Or what do I have to do to make him happy? And those sorts of thoughts can rule us and dominate us. People can become big to us and God becomes small. And Isaiah says, have you not known? Have you forgotten who God is? Or again... This chapter challenges us by asking, do idols seem more precious than God? 
Verse 18 talks about to whom will you liken or compare God. And then verse 19 refers to an idol. And it talks about the manufacturing of an idol because an idol is an image of a divine being that people use to feel like they've connected with their God and to manipulate it. And notice, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. When people make idols, they make idols to be something that is beautiful and attractive or at least fearsome. They make their idols to seem great and glorious so that people look at them and say, wow, that's really something great and important. And you might be saying, well, I suppose somewhere in the world people are still bowing down to statues. Well, you'd be surprised how many people in the United States worship at the foot of a statue. But maybe you don't that maybe that doesn't bother you, but may I remind you that Paul says in Colossians 3.5 that covetousness is idolatry. See, the image that we worship can be printed on green paper sometimes. Or it can be that, that shiny new car that goes past you while you're driving your not-so-shiny, not-so-new car. Or it could be something that this world offers to you, something that you see that you think, man, if I just had that, that's where the treasure is. But my friends, when you start to look around in the world and the idols that this world have really look precious to you and you start to see that's so valuable, Isaiah says, have you not known I mean, how how can you compare a thing that's made of metal that's mined out of the dirt of the earth to the God who created the earth? And yet, isn't it true that our hearts are so easily drawn after these things? Well, here's a question. Does God seem distant and unfair? This is a question that is closest in proximity to the verse that we're considering. It's right before it in verse 27. When he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? And this was not just some passing complaint, the way that this text is presented It presents it as a continual, regular complaint or attitude of murmuring, even bitterness towards God. Edward Young commented, it represents a state of mind in which despondency of heart is uppermost and there is an unbelief both in God's goodness and in his ability to fulfill his promises. John Calvin puts it very plainly when he says, they thought that God did not care about them, as usually happens in afflictions, in which we think that God has forsaken us and that he takes no concern about the affairs of this world. And let's face it, we can all get there, can't we? When things are dark, when we are tired, or we're just tired of whatever we're in right now, 
we can begin to ask these kinds of questions and doubts rise up in our hearts against God and it is a sign, my brothers and my sisters, that we have not fully come to know what we know. And we lose sight of the God whose attributes we already have been taught. But but what if you do know what you know? What if you really do know this God? How will it affect you? Well, that's what Isaiah describes in the verses after our verse. When he says, especially in verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice, the person who truly knows the God that he knows waits on God. I was just talking with a a brother in Christ. We were talking about the hardest thing in the world is to wait. It is so hard to wait. Especially when there's, you feel like something really important is just kind of hanging in the balance. And you can't do anything about it. You just have to wait. But when people know God, they wait on him. They willingly, with hope and expectation, look to him. That's, that's this concept of waiting on the Lord. It's not just, well, we're stuck here, so we might as well wait. No, it's a sense of expectancy. You're looking to God. You're, you're putting your hope in him. You're saying, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know it's in your hands, and I know who you are. And so you're waiting on the Lord. And notice the effects that that waiting has. It says they shall renew their strength. They're they're drawing from the well of salvation and drinking of the living water of God. They're finding strength and hope in their God even while they're waiting. And ultimately, God will deliver them and bring them into glory and freedom and life. And so so the first thing that this passage is saying to us is that we need to test our knowledge of God. Do you know what you know? Do you really know God in a way that, that shapes your life with this kind of hope and that gives you strength? Or is it the case that even though perhaps you could, you could describe who God is, as the Bible says, and maybe you've memorized a catechism answer or or you're familiar, you've gone to Sunday school, you might have the knowledge in your head, but when life puts you to the test and puts your knowledge of God to the test, what do you find? People are big, but God is small. The idols of this world look so beautiful and seem so precious. And God, he seems far away, and like he doesn't really care. I would would ask you, do, do you really know the Lord? Jesus Christ said that eternal life is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. <coughs> this is a salvation issue. Are you really a Christian? Do you really know this God that Jesus Christ has come to bring to us? 
Are you saved? Do you just know about him or do you know him? And I would also challenge you because if, if you are a Christian, if you do know him, then your experience, like mine, is one of constant combat. There's a battle that goes on inside of you between what you really know in your heart but all these other things that I've described. You do feel yourself drawn sometimes to the idols of this world, but then you say, no, I know someone better than this. And you need to engage in that battle, and you must not make the mistake that sometimes I have made and just assume that just because you know the answers that you have really entered deeply into the knowledge of the one who is the answer. You've got to go deep into the knowledge of God. You need to know God in a way that shapes and fills your heart with his glory and directs your life and transforms your relationships because that's what it means to know God. Now, to help us to not only test our knowledge of God, but also to rest in our knowledge of God, which is our second point, to help us to really be able to rest, that is to exercise faith in who this God is, Isaiah lists for us four things that we could either call attributes of God or, in one case, kind of a title of God. And, of course, as you probably know very well, you could spend weeks studying the attributes of God. We're not going to try and do anything like that tonight. But we are just going to walk through this passage and touch upon each one of these sparkling attributes of God, not to do some kind of theological discourse on it, although that's quite worthwhile, but to try and rest our faith more fully upon who he is. So let's look secondly at rest your knowledge in your knowledge of God. And I want you to notice that all four things that he says about God here have to do with the fact that God is limitless. God has no limitations. First of all, he is limitless in time. Isaiah says, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. He is the God of eternity. A similar statement, although not quite the same words, is made by Abraham in Genesis 21.33. He is the eternal God. Eternity is one of his attributes. In fact, when it says <coughs> the Lord is the everlasting God, that, that name of God, the Lord, or Jehovah as it's often stated, or Yahweh, the name of God is explained to us in Exodus 3.14 as meaning, I am. He is the great I am, the eternal God. Matthew Henry said, he was from eternity, he will be to eternity. And therefore with him there is no deficiency, no decay. He has his being of himself, and therefore all his perfections must needs be boundless. He is without beginning of days or end of life, and therefore with him there is no change. 
Moses writes of him in Psalm 90, verse 2. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He has no beginning. Everything in this world has a beginning. You have a beginning. There was when you were not. And in terms of your earthly existence, you have an end. There will come a day when you will no longer sit in one of these chairs. Your body will be buried in the ground or otherwise dealt with, and you will be gone from this world, though your spirit will continue in another state. But God has no beginning. I mean, if you think about that too long, you might go crazy. It is inconceivable to us, and it is God. And he has no end. He, he has no end point. He has no termination to him. And that he, because he has no beginning and because he has no end, that means that he is in no way limited by time. It says in Psalm 90, verse 4, a thousand years are as a watch in the night. A watch in the night is a way of breaking up time, and it refers to probably about three hours over the course of the night. So, a thousand years of time, comparatively speaking, are like a few hours to God. A few hours to God. I mean, think about that. Sometimes... Sometimes people might say, well, how can we really trust the promises of the Bible? I mean, really, just think about it. So God says to Abraham, 4,000 years ago, I will bless you. And then Paul says 2,000 years ago that if we belong to Christ, that we're heirs of the promises with Abraham and um, if we trust in Christ, the curse is removed and we receive the blessing of Abraham. So God has made this promise. Sure, he made that promise of, that we would be blessed. But really, 4,000 years ago? 4,000 years ago? And so you can imagine someone saying to God, God, can I really trust this promise that if I believe in Jesus, I will be blessed? I mean, you made the promise 4,000 years ago. And God says, yeah, I made it this morning. A thousand years are like a watch in the night. Yeah, I made that promise this morning. What's the big deal? You don't think I'm going to keep a promise I made this morning? We can trust the ancient promises of God because he is the everlasting God. Time puts no boundaries or limits on God's ability to keep his promises. Or, or let's focus on the present. Let's say that there's somebody that you've been praying for for decades. Okay? Maybe it's a parent or a child or a sibling or a spouse but somebody, you've been praying for God to save that person, and it's been like 50 years, okay? And you're starting to think to yourself, okay, if, if God hasn't answered this prayer and saved this person by now, and I've been praying for him for 50 years, maybe I should just give up. Because it's been 50 years. 
And God says, in a manner of speaking, yeah, you've been praying for about 20 minutes. 20 minutes to me. And is it not possible that the God who is beyond time and not limited by time, from the very moment you started praying for that person, had already, indeed from eternity, decided that he was going to answer that prayer And the very fact that you are praying is because his Holy Spirit is moving you to pray so that he can answer that prayer. And he has already determined the when and the how he's going to save that dear person's soul. But for purposes that he best understands, it's not the right time yet. Don't stop praying Don't stop praying until God makes it clear to you that it's no longer right to pray or no longer good to pray. But don't let the passage of time cause you to doubt God's ability or willingness to do what you have been asking him. He is the everlasting God. Isaiah 26.4 says, Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He is a rock. And not like a pebble, my friends. Like a huge mountain of rock. He does not change. He does not move. He is steadiness and stability in his very essence. You can trust him. And you should keep trusting him in the midst of all the changes of life. Furthermore, he's not only limitless in time, he's limitless in dominion. He's limitless in dominion. Isaiah says to us, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Now, the fact that God is the creator puts him in a totally different category than any other being that exists. If there's only one thing that you know about God, this would be the thing to start with at least. He is the creator and everything else was made by him. Which means that he has absolute sovereignty over everything outside of himself. Because he is the source of all power. He is the source of all goodness. He is the source of all intelligence. He is the source of all wealth. Everything that we have is from him. And therefore, he is Lord. And furthermore, Isaiah says, he is the creator of the ends of the earth. Which means that there is no limit to his dominion. Anywhere that you go, God is there and God is Lord. We were at camp recently. Um, A bunch of folks from our church go to camp regularly on Labor Day and camp out and get smoke in our face from the campfire and all the delights of being at camp. It really is a good time. And it's not a huge distance from here, but even so, I was walking around at camp looking at the trees and I'm thinking, you know, There is no place that I cannot go where God is not the creator. 
There is no place that you can go. There is no place that life might take you where you cannot say, God is Lord here. God is present here and he is in control because we are just creatures and he is the creator. There is no place that anyone that you care about in this world can go. If, if one of your kids, you know, or your grandkids, they get a job, they move across the country, or somebody that you know is called into missions, bless God if that happens, but then all of a sudden, how did they end up on the other side of the world and it's dangerous over there? There is no place they can go where God is not there and God is not Lord. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. He is God. And that means that we can trust him. We are able to rest in him. Because, think about the Israelites in 722 B.C., which was within Isaiah's lifetime, the Assyrians swept through and they conquered the whole northern part of Israel. And they carried away as captives many of the people. And Isaiah's message to the people of Jerusalem and Judea is, your time is coming. The Babylonians will come. They will destroy Jerusalem and we will be carried, or our descendants will be carried off. And you just think about what that meant to the Jews. I mean, this was the promised land. This was the place that was supposed to be their safe place. But they messed it all up by disobeying God. And now they're going to be banished to the ends of the earth. Does that mean it's all over? I mean, think about the people of Ukraine today. The people who just... just a matter of months ago we're living in a state of peace who who maybe 2 years from now had or 2 years ago had a sense that there might be impending danger from Russia but things are still okay here and now their beautiful cities have been blown to smithereens and reduced to rubble Many of them have died. In many cases, the men have stayed behind, but the women and the children are gone. They fled to Poland. They fled to other places in Europe. Some of them have come over here to the United States. And yet, if they are Christians, they are able to say that the same God we worshipped in Kiev or elsewhere in the Ukraine, is here in this foreign land as well. And he is still Lord, and we can trust him. And the same is true of us, my friends. No matter what may happen in our lives, no matter how we might be disrupted, how we might be dispersed, no matter what happens, we are able to say he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He is limitless in his dominion. He is also limitless in his power. Isaiah says, he does not faint or grow weary. Now, to faint means to get extremely tired. To be weary means to labor to fatigue. 
remember how God created the world? Do you remember how God created everything that exists? He spoke. It says in Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God didn't break a sweat when he created the galaxies, when he created all the planets in our solar system, when he created this this massive planet, this world that we live in. He just spoke, and it happened. He has a limitless source of energy and strength within himself. This thing right here, how long is it going to run if I don't plug it in? Two days, maybe? If I use it a lot less than that, what a pitiful God to worship. I mean, come on. What kind of a God is it that if we don't recharge it regularly, it's worthless? I have to pay for the electricity to recharge my God. My friends, we have a God whose batteries never run low. And you know, he can can be working and working and working. He can be doing amazing answers to prayer. And he never gets to the point where he says, you know what, I could just really use a vacation right now. When God instituted the Sabbath on the seventh day of creation, dear ones, he didn't do it because he needed a rest. He did it for us. The Sabbath was made for man so that we might rest and so that we might have time to do what we're doing right now and worship this great omnipotent God. You know, if you went to somebody and you asked them for help um, and then you went back and you asked them again for help, you know, whatever kind of help it might be, maybe it's financial help or Maybe they come over to your house and work on something with you, or maybe they sit time and just listen to you. I hope you have friends like that that you can do that with, but the fact of the matter is, after a while, you're going to start to say, you know what, I should probably give so-and-so a break, right? Let your foot not be in your neighbor's house too often, because I'm going to wear him out. He's only got so much time and energy. My friends, you can never wear God out. You can keep coming back to him and back to him and back to him, and he's not going to say, look, would you just give me a break? I need some rest. God's going to say, bring it on, because I can do unspeakably great things, and then I can turn around and do more unspeakably great things. He is God. He is omnipotent. He is limitless in in power. And that means he's limitless in his love for us. Even young men grow weary. I'm not young anymore. (laughs) And it seems like I get tired a lot faster than I used to. And I know I got, if the Lord gives me years yet, I've got a long way to go of getting older yet. And it's not going to get better. But you know, even young men, even, even young men, even kids, you know, sometimes those toddlers, wow. You just watch them and they go and they go and they go and they go and they go. And grandma and grandpa are saying, 
when can we send this kid home? I love him to death, but he's killing me. But you know what? Even those three-year-olds, after a while, what happens? Boom. That's right. They crash. They're exhausted. And even those young 18 to 24-year-olds who are in excellent shape and who think they can just work all day and stay up all night, guess what happens to them? They crash too. They've got limits. But God is the one who constantly supplies all of us with whatever strength we have, and he never runs out. He never runs out. So you can keep going back to him and say, okay, Lord, it's me again. I need more strength. And God says, here it is. I have all the strength that you need to face no matter what you're facing. Physical strength, emotional strength. And you know what? The Lord says to us that he actually puts us in positions where we keenly feel our weakness. Where we are afflicted and cast down. So that when we turn to him, we learn that his grace is sufficient for his power is made perfect in weakness so that everyone can see, sure wasn't him who did it. His strength came from the Lord. His strength came from the Lord. He is all that we need. And so, my friends, we can trust him. We can trust him. He's limitless in time. He's limitless in dominion. He's limitless in power. He's limitless in knowledge. It says his understanding is unsearchable. You know what that means? That means you can never fully explore the complete extent of God's knowledge and wisdom. Sometimes they do these panel things where after guys go to a conference they speak some and then they put them all up on a panel and they ask them questions and stuff like that. Well, I'll tell you something. Some of those guys have a lot of wisdom, but sooner or later, you're going to ask them a question. And if they're honest, guess what they're going to have to say? I don't know. I don't know. And, and if, if you were to come and ask me questions, I have a, a narrow field of, of knowledge that so long as we stick within that field of knowledge, I might be able to answer your questions. But start asking me questions about things broadly, and pretty soon you're going to find out, wow, there's a lot he doesn't know. But there's nothing that you could ever ask God that he wouldn't know the answer to. And it's not because he Googles it. He just knows it. He knows it. He doesn't need to research it. He doesn't need to look it up in an encyclopedia. He doesn't have a team of people working in the background, talking into his earpiece, telling him what to say. He just knows it. And you know what that means with regard to trusting God? That means that we need to stop doubting him when we don't understand what he's doing. This was one of the major problems that Israel faced, and it's a major problem that we face today as Christians. Because things happen in our lives, and we're like, God, this doesn't make any sense. And to be honest, from a human perspective, it doesn't. There are many things that happen in our lives that we don't get it. 
Why in the world, when things looked like they were just all lined up and moving in just such a perfect direction for this person's life, looks like he's got everything going for him, and disaster strikes? It doesn't make any sense. Why, why did that happen, Lord? And the, we, we, I mean, let's face it, folks. Life can be shattering sometimes. I mean, there's the daily grind of the regular painful things that we just live with. But there are also things that happen to us that are just overwhelmingly bad. And, and you know what? Sometimes Christians seem to think that just because we have the Bible that we know all the answers. We don't. We don't know why things happen. And sometimes we feel just as confused and frankly just as upset as other people do. We just typically know better than to show that to anybody. But inside it can all be a turmoil. My friends, when things like that happen, it's, it's God's way of saying to his children, look, I know that you know me, but I want you to know me. I want to take you deep. And one way that I'm going to take you deep is by taking you to a place where you have to honestly say, God, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Not only can I not figure out why this has happened, but it seems wrong. It seems wrong that this should happen. It's not good. I can't see anything good in it. But God, your understanding is unsearchable. And therefore, because I know who you are, I will trust you because if I could completely understand you and your ways, you wouldn't be God. Why do we expect to completely understand an infinite God? Why do we think that when life takes a turn that makes no sense and we look in the Bible and we say, all things work together for good and our hearts say, I don't see it. Why do we think that we should be able to see it? Why do we think that we can completely understand God? I think about a situation of a child being taken to a hospital. And little Johnny, who's maybe four years old, he's crying, he's scared, he hates it. The people, he doesn't know the people there. And the thing that bothers him most about it is mommy and daddy are making this happen. Mommy stands there and doesn't do anything when that mean man takes that needle and sticks it in his arm. In fact, when little Johnny tries to fight, daddy actually holds him down. Daddy, he's hurting me. What are you doing? And from his childish perspective, it makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. He knows his mommy and daddy. He knows that they're kind to him. He knows that they love him. 
but this seems like the most horrible thing in the world. He's supposed to be out on the baseball field. He's missing the game. Everybody else is there. What he doesn't understand and what he can't understand in his four-year-old mind, but what his parents understand is that if he's not there in the hospital, he's going to die. And so his mommy and daddy take him there, and yes, they even hold him down when he needs to be held down because they love him. And if he's a wise little four-year-old, even though it's hard, he will listen to his daddy when his daddy says, son, I know you don't understand this right now, but you just need to trust us. Just trust us. It's going to be okay. My friends, if that's true of the difference between a four-year-old and an adult, how much more is that true for us, whose knowledge and understanding is so tiny, we get so confused sometimes, we are less than four-year-olds compared to God. But we should know our Father, right? We should know our God. And when life doesn't make sense, when life is just a big puzzle, and when it seems like God is actually holding us in this place of pain and difficulty and not allowing us to escape, we should know what we know. (coughs) We should know that he's God. We should know that he loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross to save us. And we should know that he is working out a great and sovereign plan that is so good. And what he is sending us through, he would not send us through if it were not necessary to accomplish his good and wise and loving purposes in our lives. So that years later, when that little four-year-old boy looks back, he's actually kind of embarrassed. He's embarrassed that that he struggled and screamed. He understands now that if mom and dad hadn't taken him there then, he wouldn't be here now. And he understands too that he has to do hard things with his kids sometimes because he loves them. Oh, my friends, Isaiah is calling us to test our knowledge of God. What what knowledge of God do we really have that solid knowledge of God that carries us through the hard times, that gives us courage to face up against people who seem so big and so scary sometimes, that causes us to turn away from the things of this world and to trust in treasures that we've never seen? Do you know what you know? Do you know God? If you don't know him at all, then then let me just say to you that the way to know God is through Jesus. You've got to trust him. You've got to trust him as the one who died on the cross for our sins. He is God in the flesh. If you will trust in Jesus Christ and him alone to save you from your sins, you will know God and you'll know him forever. And if you do know this God, Grow in the knowledge of him. 
And don't be thrown off base when you discover, my friends, that you don't know him as well as you thought you did. It's okay. It's okay. Because the Heavenly Father understands that. And he is using the circumstances of your life to test your knowledge of God, but also to grow you so that you can rest in your knowledge of God. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you so much for your sovereign involvement in our lives. We pray, Father, that you would help us to know you in a way that is deep and strong and vital. We pray, Father, that our our childish thoughts about you would nevertheless be thoughts that are true to your word and that they would be thoughts of trust and thoughts of love. Give us grace and courage, Lord, to endure the trials that you have ordained for us, to do the labors that you have set before us. And Lord, we so long for the day when Jesus will come back and we will see you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen.